turn to the Word of God to a well-known portion of Scripture. In fact, it's a favourite of many, and that is in John's Gospel, chapter 2, about the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. And so, John 2, verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now just as an aside, not really the message, but just as an aside, those were the last recorded words of the mother of Jesus in all of Scripture. We never hear another word from her ever again that's recorded. And isn't it lovely that those were the last words that she ever said that's been recorded. Whatever he says unto you, do it. There can be no better command than that than doing what Christ wants us to do. Now there were set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. Now what does this story teach us about the Lord uh, apart from the obvious uh, that he was meeting a need for more wine to be at a wedding feast? What are the scriptures really trying to show us here? Well, verse 11 tells us this beginning of signs, miracles, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. The four gospels record for us about 35, 36 of the miracles of Jesus. And about three dozen of them are just simply a sampling of the many miracles that Jesus actually did in the three and a half years he was on the earth. And as Peter said in Acts 10, 38, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And then it says Matthew 12, verse 15, and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And he was moved with compassion towards them and healed their sick in Matthew 14, 14. And so it talks of multitudes following Jesus. Now we don't know how many is in a multitude. But whenever Jesus fed the 5,000, it says it was a multitude that he fed. And so we know then there was thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people who followed Jesus hoping for a miracle. And there must have been literally hundreds of people who were healed or set free or blessed by Jesus that is not recorded in Scripture. There's just a sampling for us to read. Now John was writing here his gospel when he was an old man. He was looking back at things. And here's what he said in John 21, 25. 
And there were also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now, even though that may be hyperbole, uh, but yet uh, it does give us an indication that there's an awful lot that Jesus did that just could not be written down. It was just too much. It was so much. So thank God for the miracles that have been recorded for us to read and for us to learn something through. Now, Jesus' miracles transcended, superseded all the laws that were natural, the laws of nature. Uh, and they defy explanation and they defy logic and rationale. You can't rationally understand a supernatural miracle. You've got to take it and believe it simply as it happened. I remember that Adam was given power and dominion over every living creature, everything. He had power and dominion. But he lost that through his disobedience, through his sin, and through his fall in Eden. He lost that. But then came along Jesus, who was the second Adam, or the last the second man, or the last Adam, as the Bible calls him. And see, sir, he certainly had great power and authority over everything and even over everyone. Actually, whenever you think about what he did, how that he calmed the storm, he stilled the sea, he stood up on the brow of that boat in the midst of that great storm, and he says, Peace, be still. And immediately the sea and the waves that were roaring just settled. He had that power over everything. And do you remember how that the disciples, how that they came back after a fruitless night's fishing and Jesus was on the shore and they didn't recognize him in the early morning gloom and he told them to cast their nets over the right side of the ship. And they did that and they got a great big catch of fish, a great shoal was brought into their nets. Again, showing us the power that Jesus had even over nature. And then one time, Peter had to pay his temple tax. And he quizzed Jesus about that. Remember what Jesus told him? He says, go out into the Sea of Galilee. And he says, cast in a line with a hook, not a net, just a line with a hook. Because he says, there's a fish there and it's got money in its mouth. Now imagine the millions of fish that are in the great Sea of Galilee. And how that, that one fish with money in its mouth, when Peter cast that hook in, it made a beeline just to get that hook and for Peter to get his fish. And again, that shows us the power that Jesus had, that he was able to command even nature, even the wind in the sea, even the fish in the sea. Jesus was able to command that. And remember then in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, how that Jesus was in the wilderness and he was there, being tempted by the evil one. And here's what it says in Mark 1, 12 and 13. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. You see, whenever you read that about Jesus being in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil, we obviously focus on the temptations. But this little line here, sometimes you miss that. It says, and he was with the wild beasts. You see, in Jesus' day, not now, of course, in, in Israel and Palestine, in Jesus' day, there was wild beasts. There was lions. There was bears. There was leopards. There was poisonous snakes. And yet here he is, 40 days in the wilderness, and not one of them would harm him. 
not one of them could harm him because he had complete mastery over all nature. Remember that Jesus is the creator. In John 1 and 3, it tells us that he made everything and without him was nothing made that was made. And so it doesn't say this, but I can in my mind's eye imagine in those 40 days in the wilderness among the wild beasts, I can imagine that they would come to him and he could pet the lion or pet the leopard. He could do that because he was the creator and they weren't afraid of him and he wasn't afraid of them. I'm saying all that to say this, to show you the power that Christ had over nature, over everything in this world. And then remember how that he entered into Jerusalem on the colt, the fall of an ass. And it was unbroken, the Bible says. Never man had sat on it. But when Jesus got on it, it never flinched, it never bucked, it never tried to throw him off. It was settled. It was content because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was on its back and it was leading him into Jerusalem. And so he had power over everything. He spoke to the fig tree and it withered and died. He spoke to demons and they fled. He spoke to diseases and they disappeared. He spoke to the dead and they arose again. He turned water into wine. He fed the 5,000 with loaves and fishes. Incredible power and mastery over everything. Imagine if God was to come to you and he said that he was going to give you a worldwide ministry of signs and wonders and it would be unparalleled in human history. And from this moment on, you would have the ability to even to raise the dead, even to walk on water if you wanted to, even to calm any angry storms. What would you do to launch that kind of ministry? What would be the first miracle that you would perform? What would you choose? Would it be casting, calling fire down from heaven like Elijah? Would it be causing the sun and the moon to stand still in the valley of Ajalon like Joshua? Perhaps like Moses, you would want to part the Red Sea. That would be spectacular. But isn't it interesting that Jesus chose none of those things? None of those spectacular things. In fact, he chose to manifest his glory at a little village in the back hills of Galilee among a family and a few friends at a wedding feast, and we don't even know who they were. <laughs> not in Jerusalem, not somewhere where the crowds were, but away in a little place, an obscure little village among a family that's not even named. That's how Jesus chose to manifest his glory. How did he manifest his glory? By involving himself in the very ordinary lives of very ordinary people. Now remember, this is God in human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the second person of the divine Godhead. And he came down to this earth, and yes, as a little baby in a manger, but grew up as a man, grew up in a carpenter shop, doing an ordinary job. And here he is here, involving himself with ordinary people, everyday affairs of the life that we live. At the wedding place, with family 
and with friends, a commonplace event. This wasn't a celebrity wedding. We don't even know who these people were. We think they were probably friends of Mary, his mother. She certainly seemed to have some say at the reception, but that's all we know. Certainly they weren't high-powered people. No, Jesus loved to mix just with the ordinary people. You know, one of his favorite names for himself was the Son of Man. That's what he loved to call himself, the Son of Man. He loved to identify with ordinary people like you and like me. And in the workplace, he would go down to where Peter and James and John would be working at their fishing boats, mending their nets and so forth. He loved to go to the workplace to be with people where they worked. Because remember for 30 years, he was a working man. He worked with his hands in the carpenter's shop. And so he loved to identify just with ordinary working people. And at the marketplace, he loved to be among people rubbing shoulders just with ordinary folks. I don't know if you've ever been to a marketplace in, a, in an Eastern and Asian country. I have, and let me tell you, it is packed. <laughs> I mean, it really is packed, and there's a lot going on. And people are selling their wares. They're making their livelihood. And that's the place where Jesus would be found, in the marketplace, among ordinary people, living their ordinary lives, doing ordinary things. And Jesus, the Son of God, was right there among them. And at the place of worship, whether that be the synagogue or whether that was the temple. Do you remember how in the temple, how that, uh, you know, in the court of the woman, where those receptacles were lined up for people to give their offerings, and how he watched intently as people came and went and gave their offerings, and how he picked out that little widow woman who threw in her very last, and how he commended her in front of his disciples. Jesus was very observant. He didn't miss anything. And he liked to be around watching people and giving advice and, and helping and correcting and sometimes rebuking. But he wanted to be around people. And of course he was at the sickbed of Peter's mother-in-law. He was at the deathbed of Jairus' daughter. He was at the graveside of Mary and Martha. And what a scene that was at the graveside. You know, someone has noted that in John's record of Jesus' miracles, that the first one John recorded was at a wedding, and the last one he recorded was at a funeral, Lazarus' tomb. And so he was at the gladdest place and the saddest place. And so he's with us in the gladdest place of our lives and the saddest place of our lives. He's with us whenever we're happy. He's with us whenever we're sad. He's with us whenever we're full of joy and things are going well. But whenever we're done in the dumps and things are going bad and there's trouble, he's with us right there. The gladdest place and the saddest place, he's right there with us. And so thank God for the Lord Jesus. Religion tends to cut men off from ordinary life from the real world. You know, the fakers in India, they, they would set up a pole for 40 days. There's people who would cloister themselves away behind thick walls, men and women, for years on end. There's cults who would separate themselves and live with themselves by themselves. Now we understand that even as Christians living in this world, there is a place for separation, but never isolation. We're in this world, but we're not of it. There's a place for isolation, a place for separation, but never ever for isolation. 
Jesus never isolated himself, except those brief times when he went to pray alone. But other than that, he made sure he was around people. He was in the community. Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. And what a difference that makes. God was doing a new thing. Jesus was turning water into wine. God was doing a new thing. There was a new day dawning. And Jesus was introducing that. Isaiah prophesied of a new day coming. In Isaiah 55, 13, he said, Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. Instead of law, grace. Instead of judgment, mercy. Instead of penalty, pardon. Instead of retribution, there would be redemption. Instead of damnation, there would be salvation. Instead of Mount Sinai, there would be Mount Zion. Jesus gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness for mourning, garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Blood speaks of judgment and death. Wine speaks of joy and gladness. And there's the difference. Jesus came with a new deal, a new covenant, a new testament made for us. And there's much joy and there's much gladness in this life in Christ. You know, as believers, we shouldn't be running about with a big sour puss on us. We shouldn't have a big long face. Yeah, there's times when it's difficult and there's times when it's hard and our face is long. But generally, generally, we should be happy people. We should be joyful people, generally speaking. You know, the great preacher C. at Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, you know, when he talked to his young students, his, his lectures to my students, and he said, you know, to them who were going to be preachers, he said, you know, whenever, you're, whenever you speak about heaven, he says, let your face be, let there be a beatific smile upon your face. Let the glory of God let your face shine. But he says, when you talk about hell, he says, your ordinary face will do. <laughs> and so we need to have a face that shows that we're glad that we know Christ, that we're happy in this life because Jesus has made a difference. And so he showed the glory of God by the quality of life that he imparts. Did you notice it said he kept the best wine until the last? That's what the master of ceremonies said when he tasted the wine that Jesus made. He said to the young man, the bridegroom, he says, you kept the best wine to the last. Of course, he didn't know where it came from. That's the opposite of what the devil does. The devil wants us to make us think that we get the best, but actually with him you get the worst. Whenever the prodigal left the father's house, he thought he had the best. He was so glad to get out of the father's house with, with those rules, and with that work he had to do, with the, the obedience he had to obey his father. He was glad to get out of that. He, he wanted away from all of that. And he got his father's money and he entered the far country. And this was the life he thought. This is the best life. I'm having it right now. I'm enjoying this. This is wonderful. Until famine struck. Metaphorically speaking, until the wine ran out. His money literally ran out. And when his money ran out, his friends ran off. And he found himself in a very, very lonely place indeed. And no one cared for his soul, the Bible says. No one. 
And so what he thought was the best turned out to be the worst. But thank God he did go back to the Father and to the Father's house and was welcomed back and forgiven and fully restored. Onesimus stole from his master Philemon, who was a rich Christian businessman. And he took something and he headed off to the big city. And he thought, this is the best. I'm getting out of here and I'm going to the big city and I'll go to the bars, I'll go to the clubs, I'll have a great time with wine, woman and song. But he got into trouble and he got arrested and he got thrown into jail. And so the best wasn't that. In fact, that was the worst for him. But thank God, in the redeeming providence of God, his jailmate was the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul led him to Christ and wrote a beautiful little letter. When he got out of jail, he says, take that to my friend Philemon, your boss. He's my friend, you know. Take it to him and let him read that because I want him to receive you, not as a slave, not as a, but as a brother in Christ. So it did have a happy ending at the end. But at the start, you see, he thought this is the best. And that's what the devil does. You're missing something, he tells young people today. You're missing something. It's wonderful out there. Just get out there and do it. And have all your fun and do everything you want to do. But then trouble comes and nobody cares. And it's not the best. See, the natural order is deterioration. The body gets older, flowers fade, the garment goes threadbare, and the heart of man actually grows ever more evil. In spite of all of our knowledge and our sophistication and our technology, in spite of all of that, who would argue that the world's not a very safe place? It's not a very nice place at times, is it? You know, they told us years ago that the more knowledge we have and the more technology we have and the more scientific we become, the better this world's going to be, is it? Is it really? I don't think so. You know, I was just thinking this week that during this whole pandemic, the battle cry has been to save lives. And who would argue with that? Let's try to save lives. I mean, there's already over 40,000 people in England dead. There's over 800 dead in every country. And so the, the cry is to save lives. And nobody's going to argue with that. We want to save lives. We don't want people dying with diseases and, and this COVID-19. But who's crying out for that little baby that's being born in the womb? Who's marching in the streets for that little thing? You know, the mother of all parliaments, just this past week, both houses has voted the most draconian, the most wicked laws in abortion in the whole Western world. And they foisted it upon our little country. Let me give you a statistic that may shock you. Think about this. The whole population of Australia, the whole population of Ireland, of Finland, of Norway, of Denmark, and of Austria, that's the number of babies that were slaughtered in their mother's wombs in 2019, in one year. Can you imagine that? That the population of all of those countries has been swept away? So don't tell me the world's getting a better place. It isn't. And without Christ, it won't be. We need Christ. We need the Lord as we've never needed him before. 
But with Christ, even though the outward man perishes, yet the inward man, the Bible says, is renewed day by day. Our hearts grow fonder, our future grows brighter, our faith grows, our hope grows, our love grows. The wine just keeps getting better and better. You remember just a few weeks ago in church and I preached about our future and how the best is yet to come? And it is. No matter how good it even may be in this life for you right now as a believer, the best is yet to come. That's what God has promised for us for eternity. The scriptures for us have become more meaningful. Do you ever notice how you get older as a Christian, how the Bible becomes more meaningful? You know, whenever you were just a young believer, you read the Bible, you were enthusiastic to read it, but at the start, you didn't know much. Sometimes you read a chapter and you scratched your head and says, what was that about? I don't even understand that. But now you do understand it because now the Holy Spirit, who's the author of the scripture, the inspirer of scripture, he helps us to understand that. And there's such tools out there to help you to believe and understand what you're reading about in Scripture. I has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. But whenever we get to heaven, I think that we'll say the half was never told us. The half was never told us. You know, the Queen of Sheba went to visit Solomon. She heard of his fame. But when she went and she heard his wisdom and she saw his wealth and his riches and his palace and she saw all of that. The Bible says her breath was taken away and she was no slouch. This was the Queen of Sheba. But when she saw what he had, her breath was taken away. And she says, the half wasn't even told me. And I think whenever we get to the glory, I think we'll understand that statement that the half was never told us. And so he manifests his glory also by meeting the simplest of her needs. The wine ran out. How embarrassing. Here's a young man just starting out in his married life. This is his first week, really is his honeymoon period. And he was responsible for the wine. He was to make sure that that would never run out. Because in those days, of course, a marriage feast would maybe last for a week. But whether more people came that he didn't know was coming or whether those who came drunk more than he, they should have drunk, we don't know. But for whatever reason, the wine was running out fast and he was going to be in big trouble. How humiliating. This would be embarrassing. It's just starting out with his new wife, his bride, in front of all his family and his friends and the whole little village. And Mary went to Jesus and said, the wine is running out. Talk about getting off to a bad start. But what does God care about a wee couple <laughs> in the backside of Galilee, in a little village that nobody knows hardly? What does God care about that? He cares a lot about it because he sent Jesus to meet that need. Right at that moment when that young man was going to have the most humiliating moment in his entire life, Jesus was there to meet that need. He cares. He cares about your need. He cares about your home. He cares about your children. He cares about your job. He cares about your health. He cares about your finances. He cares about every detail of your life. The Bible says he even counts the very hairs on your head. He numbers them. He says he even knows every little spiral that falls. 
That's the Christ that we serve. That's the Savior that we have come to know. That's the one who really, truly cares about you. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and 7, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. He couldn't have made that any plainer, couldn't he? He literally cares for you today. He cared about Jairus' daughter, didn't he? As soon as he raised her from the dead, what was the first thing he said? Give her something to eat. She hadn't eaten for days. Give her something to eat. What a lovely moment that must have been in that home at that particular moment. Can you imagine raising that little girl from the dead and then saying, give her something to eat? That, that was more than just, listen, give her something to eat. That was, let's have a meal. Let's sit around the table. Can you imagine the joy that must have been at that moment? Because probably the parents hadn't eaten for days either. You know, when you're in deep trouble and you're sick or somebody's dying and you're, you're mourning, you don't feel it eating. But Jesus wants to lift that. So he says, let's have a meal. Make her something to eat. Let's bring some joy again into this situation. He cared about Peter's mother-in-law. He raised her up out of that sick bed, that fever she had. He cared about the widow of Nain's son, her only son, and he raised him from the dead. He cared about blind Bartimaeus. He cared about him bagging at the side of the road. He deeply cared, and he healed his blindness. He cared about the centurion's servant. The centurion, the Roman. <laughs> but he cared about his servant, and he healed him. He cared about the Syrophoenician's little daughter, with the unclean spirit. And he just spoke the word and it left. See, this is the Christ that we serve today. This is the Christ who gives, gives the good wine, the best wine for us. Mary of Magdala on that resurrection morning, she stood outside that tomb in the gloom of very early morning. Her eyes was filled with salt tears. The Lord had gone. And the Lord appeared. She thought it was the gardener. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, well, they've taken away my Lord and I, I don't know where he is. And you remember how that when he spoke her name, Mary, how that instantly then she recognized it was Christ. Rabboni, she said. And she wanted to grab him and hold his feet. And he says, don't touch me. Don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Now think of this for a moment. All of heaven, all of heaven was waiting to welcome Jesus, the Lord and King of all glory. Welcome him home after his marvelous victory over sin, over Satan, over death, over hell. And they were waiting to welcome him home. They were standing on tiptoe. They were looking over the balconies of glory but he would not go home. Heaven would have to wait because Mary was crying and she was distraught. And before he would go home, he would speak to her. And he'd bring her comfort and bring her cheer. That's how considerate, that's how compassionate our Lord Jesus is. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And we believe in him today too, don't we? You believe in him, I believe in him. 
We're absolutely convinced he is who he said he was. We're absolutely convinced he is the Lord of glory. And just as we close, only his mother and those servants and the disciples, only they knew that he had turned that water into wine. Jesus kept in the background, just said, serve. Take it to the master of the feast. He stepped into the background. But I wonder, and we don't know, I wonder when that young couple found out that it was Jesus who turned the water into wine. I wonder when they found out that it was Jesus who rescued them that day, that it was Jesus who made a difference in their lives as they just begun their marriage that day. It was Jesus who was there that blessed them and touched them and did a mighty miracle. We never know, but it's just a thought. What a Savior we serve today. The one who loves us enough to go to that cross and die for us, to give his life for you and for me and for the whole world. And so we thank God today that we know him. We thank God today that he has given us his best. Every day he gives of his best to us. And we bless him for that. I want to pray for you today. I want to pray as we go before Johnny comes and leads us the last worship song. Lord Jesus, I thank you today that you have turned our water into wine that you have made all the difference to us in life. We're so glad that we have come to know you personally. We're so glad that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us, that you have made us fit for your heaven. We thank you that the best is even yet to come, but we glorify your name. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this life that you've imparted to us today. We give you thanks and we bless you. In Christ's name.